Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, January the 4th, 843-661-0937. Good morning, No Shot Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. I guess we could label our call yesterday's show. We don't label segments, right? I mean, we I mean we don't we remember that day we talked about such and such. But I mean, we don't officially title. I guess what um yesterday's show, Craftsman and Harvard ain't what they used to be. I mean that that's the <laughs> official name of yesterday's um show. W- one of the interesting stories that I want to begin with. I don't know if you saw this or not, but um the iPatch congressman Dan Crenshaw, he and Jesse Waters Went at it yesterday on Twitter and Instagram. Is it X or Inst- I mean Twitter? I mean, what do we officially call it well, by now? It's X. Okay, it's X. But I mean, it's still. I mean, I punch in Twitter. Yeah. Dot com and it comes yeah. up Twitter. Um, but it comes up X. I mean, when I punch in Twitter, it comes up. Formerly uh, Twitter is how how they would yeah. probably want you to say. It. Well, anyway, on X, Twitter, or Instagram, or an Instagram, TikTok, I think was included. Um, Crenshaw and Jesse Waters. We're going at one another. Ooh, I missed and, that. And, and Crenshaw said something interesting. Um, the political entertainment industry is in uh, just a bad place. And I was thinking about that driving over this morning. Um, I do believe this, Rev, and you and I argue or debate this from time to time. I think Fox has morphed into a less than serious news uh, organization, a news channel. It's not a news channel anymore. It is full-fledged political entertainment industry, and I find it so boring and unattractive. I mean, it's just not fun. Uh, I go back to the days. So you're not entertained well, by I mean, the political well, entertainment. I mean, it, it's like. just not entertaining at all. I mean, if I want to be entertained, I'll go to the theater or I'll watch a blockbuster. I mean, I don't go to, to Fox News. I mean, it, here's my problem. If you're going to call yourself Fox News, have a little more than just Brett Baer. I mean, I guess I cut my teeth on Bill O'Reilly and then Megan Kelly, and then Tucker Carlson at the 8 o'clock anchorship. And they were, without question, a part of the um, the political entertainment industry. Um, but there was still some other hard news on Fox, and there's just not much of that. Now, I don't have the luxury of being retired and watching it during the day. I don't have any idea what they talk about during the, um, the balance of the day. Um, when I get home, it's normally sometime around 5, 15, 5, 30, I have no interest at all in the five. I mean, it bores me to death. I know that you say some of the younger consumers kind of like that. I know people brand. That, that, I mean, that's their must-watch show every day. It is so uninspiring to me. And I think it's pretty entertaining. Well, I, I got to say this. You ready? I feel dumb when oh. I watch it. I mean, I just feel dumb when I watch it. <laughs> but if you know what to expect. And then after that, after that comes Bayer, well, yeah. and we've given him his due. Sure. I mean, he's a legitimate news guy. He's a legitimate um, news guy on a network that still calls themselves Fox News Network. Anyway, um, I can't get into the rant between Crenshaw. You were going to say something about the five, I think, before I rudely interrupt no, you. I, 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 used I, to me rudely I was just going to say with the, with the five, I mean, that's a show that for, for me, you know, that's we kind of go back and forth on that one because you don't like it. You find it boring or whatever. And I kind of like it. I find it entertaining. I don't go to that show for hard-hitting news. I go for the back and forth between the characters that are on the show, and that's fine with me. Okay, Josh, where do you go to get conservative? You look at me now. You ready? Air quotes. Quotes. Conservative <laughs> news. Where do you go as a as a, a, a young man in his mid-20s? Um, <clears throat> there's certain online political commentators that will remain unnamed I get news from, okay. and, uh, you know, mostly Twitter and 
the internet and stuff. For me, that's more informative than the five. So, so your your opinion of Fox News is boring, lame, okay. out of touch. Uh, very much so. I yeah. mean, it's a boring, boring outfit. Well, now, now. I, now, I don't want to be perceived as as basically sticking up for Fox News because I think they've changed. Um, their their political leaning doesn't appeal to me as much as it used to. I mean, I'll be honest from that standpoint. You know, they're not the same as they used to be. Uh, but I'm just I'm trying to give a little due to you know show I think is pretty but, but well here, done. But here's the frustration: they've sold their soul, and I get it. I mean, it, it's it's marketing, it's profit, it's consumers. You know what they want. I, I get all that. I'm not naive to any of that. But we have the opportunity to engage Fox News radio personalities every day that are serious news people. Why not incorporate some of their work into the television side of it? I mean, they, they made a decision to Josh's point. I guess to be to service a certain demographic, to serve a certain demographic. Um, I mean, there's no way you can tell me that the people on Fox News are more talented than Eben Brown, Ryan Schmelz, some of these others. I mean, Eben is a. I mean, I'll say this: Eben would love me for this. Maybe not. Eben Brown deserves a 30-minute television show. If you're Fox News Network. And, I mean, if you're going to be the Fox political entertainment industry network, then say that. But you refer to yourself as a news network. The only news person you have of any validity to me is Brett Baer. And I was thinking about, we had a conversation yesterday. I joked around about Harvard and Craftsman Tools and whatnot. The, the, The conversations we have on this show with many of our listeners and callers, to me, is more provocative, engaging, informative, smart than about anything you hear on Fox News. And I, I just, where do where do we go to fight? In other words, if we're going to try to equip an army of conservative believers like um, Josh, like my kids, where do they go to get awareness and a well-rounded story and an understanding comprehensively of what this issue entails and what that issue entails? It goes back to my complaining about conservative talk radio for years that's our upside. I mean, that's our growth potential. I mean, talk news radio is a certain ingredient. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It is a big part of the stew that engages the conservative electorate. There's no question about it. Juan Williams famously said, I know what the polls say today, but it's Friday. Wait till those news guys, wait till those radio show guys get back to work and gin up their audiences. I mean, we, we are a force. I am a part. You are. The three of us in this room are a part of a force that moves the meter in conservative world. There's no question about it. But couldn't we be a little more serious in some of the conversations? I guess that's what I enjoy more about this show. When I walk out of this studio and say, job well done, we've had shows that are incredibly ah, in-depth and informative and, and, and smart. I mean, it, n- nobody feels dumb when they listen to this show, and it's almost like the conservative media have decided we can't argue conservatism and intellectual. It's kind of anti. We bought into that. Remember yesterday we talked about Harvard, and we said, yeah, we're the anti-intellectuals. No, I mean, we're not anti-intellectuals at all, and we shouldn't settle for that. We should embrace these very provocative. I go back to Sam's call yesterday, Sam from Darlington. I mean, he and I disagree a little bit on that, but there's an interesting argument and debate to be had about that. And Fox News just decides to not have any of those interesting is there, and informative debates. Is there any news organization even in existence today? 
I mean, because you can't say you can apply the same standard to NBC News, ABC News, CNN, CBS News, okay. right? You're going you're going to want to fire me when I say this, but <laughs> I don't think you can fire me. I mean, I think you can talk to the people who could fire I me. I think you can have um, me fired. When I was on vacation, I got up every morning, not like I do at 4.30, but I got up, went back to bed, made a cup of coffee. By 6.30 or 7, I was in front of a television and a computer, and I watched Morning Joe about every morning for that week. I never got bored. Hmm. I disagreed with every damn thing that came out of their mouth, but it never bored me. It never made me feel dumb. I mean, it made me want to yell and scream. It made me want to be on the set and say, no, you're wrong. You're not proposing. You're not presenting the argument fairly. But there was an intellectualism about the debate that I found stimulating. I mean, I really and truly did. Once again, I disagreed with about everything that came out of their mouths. Steve Ratner, Joe Scarborough, Mika Brzezinski. I mean, I think Mika may be a bit. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> the others were pretty smart. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they couched arguments okay. in, in, in intellectual ways, and, and it was, a, it was a, a bit stimulating to me. I would flip over to the Fox and Friends or whatever that morning show is, and, you know, pretty girls with legs crossed. Saying dumb things. I mean, it's not interesting. Not, not, I mean, it, once again, I understand their business model. You understand their business model. Who are the biggest consumers of Fox News? Male conservative white men. I mean, that, that's who they are. Male, white, conservative. That's who their audience is. Um, there's a certain attractiveness about the, um, the people that read the teleprompters. Forget the words they're reading. It's what they're reading or who is reading the teleprompter. But I turned the television on every morning and in a moment or two got real bored with Fox, flipped over to Morning Joe, never got bored. Now, now maybe my, my, my wanting to confront what they were right, saying right. was the reason I found yeah. it stimulating. Um, you know, it's, yelling it stirred at your uh, intellectual emotions, yeah, if well, there it, is such it, a thing. It, but isn't that kind of the job sure. of entertainment? Sure. I'm going to stir the emotions in some way, shape, or form. Anyway, that's just, uh, we'll, we'll kind of go down that road a bit as today uh, progresses, but um, Crenshaw accuses Jesse Waters of being a hack. I mean, he's not of quality. He's just, he's the eight o'clock guy because he can be a bit entertaining and, and funny and humorous and outlandish. Now, now I, I sound like I'm defending Fox, but I'll have to admit that I don't think I've watched Fox News since Tucker left. Certainly it's, not the nighttime. No, I might have turned into Brett Baer one time. And why he had an interview or something I was interested in. But besides that, I have not watched Jesse Waters at night. I don't watch any of the nighttime lineup. I, and I really, I'm, I'm not usually home in time to watch the five, to be honest. Was with Tucker must-see TV for you? If there, if there okay. was such a thing. Okay. I, I don't know if I have a must-see TV. But, but if I was by the TV looking for something to watch and it was his time, I'd, I'd be on it. The, the 8 o'clock time slot at Fox for O'Reilly, Megan Kelly, and then Tucker Carlson. I mean, it was, it was hard-hitting. I mean, you yeah. were going to hear something from one of those three that you hadn't heard anywhere else. And I think regurgitating just the silliness of the political entertainment industry, I don't find interesting at all. Let's go to the phone. Tommy in Hartsville. Good morning. Well, good morning. Y'all, how y'all are doing this morning? Hey, Tommy. Uh, yeah, this is the first time I'll call since Cato's left. Uh, but, yeah, you talk about conservative uh, news. I find Newsmax is about the most conservative you can find. It's on channel 222 on Spectrum Cable. And some of the older casts from Fox from back in the day 
a couple of those are also on there. And I uh, think y'all will uh, find that a whole lot better to watch, I believe. I just uh, want to get that out there. Y'all thank, have a good day. Thank you, Tommy. News check, uh, Newsmax will send you a check in the mail yeah. for promoting their brand. And, and that's a good I mean, one. I mean, I've heard some of that. I yeah. mean, you know, I, I just, I, I, I yearn for a more serious conversation intellectually about conservatism or the America First movement. I don't think the America First movement is at all anti-intellectual. I, I just don't. I think there are so many places. I mean, we tried yesterday with a rock and roll icon. I mean, we really did. I sent you an article last night. Some guy had written, yeah. um, you know, I think Joe referred to the article. The guy wrote that Springsteen is a fraud. I mean, I think there's so much digging to be done if we're interested at all in America First as an intellectual political movement. I mean, the job displacements, the... um. The, the hollowing out of the middle way, of the Midwest, uh, the deindustrialization of the working class, the automation, robotics, technology, um, how that played a part. I mean, I, I just think there's so much kicking in what led to Donald Trump being a legitimate candidate for president in 16, legitimate in 20, obviously, and once again, the front runner in 2024. We try to kind of gloss that over as just raw emotion and just sheer um, you know, it's just a little bit like a fire burning. I mean, who knows where it goes? Nobody knows. No, I think there's a core there that is very, very intellectual. I just wish we had a news agency on our side, and there are sides on our side that took more seriously its quote-unquote news-delivering obligation. Take a break. Back in a few moments. Then they're lining their chicks for free? Yep. Mm, I'm just saying. Money for nothing. Mm-hmm. So, so, some of what I read yesterday said that Bill liked them young. <laughs> right? Did you yeah, read that? I did. Mr. Clinton liked them young. Let's go to the phone. That was a quote from now, the release yesterday. I stand by my comments, and, and I mean this sincerely. If you are a Democrat, and I know you spy on us from time to time. I mean, I know what you infidels are up to. But if you are a Democrat, and you're listening to this show, and you believe the Trump voter lacks morality or integrity or virtue and you believe that trump's a sleazebag and you're a sleazebag by association but you've ever voted for a clinton you're a hypocrite period you are the biggest hypocrite walking the political planet today any clinton supporter current or former who accuses a trump voter of supporting a sleazebag you are (laughs) an absolute and total hypocrite Let's go to the phone. Sam in Cross Hill. Good morning. Uh, good morning, fellas. Hope your year's off to a good start. Uh, I'm going to step in here and uh, come to the defense of Fox News, and I'm going to tell you uh, why. Uh, you guys, uh, you, if you're watching Fox and Friends and then you're turning into the evening broadcast, you are seeing uh, news motainment, I guess you might want to call it. But you get out of Fox and Friends when you guys are going to work, and if you can uh, follow it through the day, which I do, I have it on usually most of the time as I'm wandering through my house. But you start off from 9 to 11, and you've got some serious coverage, I think, with Dana Perino and Bill Hemmer. Uh, and then uh, uh, you go uh, up from about 11 to 12 with Harris Faulkner. You get the, the noontime broadcast uh, coverage there. It's just kind of uh, news motainment. But then you get into one from 1 to 3. You've got John Roberts and Sandra Smith. Three to four, you got Martha McCallum, and from four to five, you got Neil Cavuto. 
And uh, they, uh, unlike the other channels, will cover uh, press conferences. You can see the White House press conference. You've got the Defense Department. You've got the State Department. And the one thing I would tell you is that if it wasn't for Fox News, I don't think any of us would know a whole lot about the uh, southern invasion and the border because they've got a drone. They fly down there, and they show the throngs of people coming in. And you don't see that on any of the other, on any of the other broadcasts. And so I, I'll counter that a little bit. Uh, I have watched some Newsmax, so I can't really fairly evaluate it. But I still go back. I, I guess it's because I watched Sandra Smith and Neil Cavito, Martha McCallum kind of grow up in there they, because they came across from the uh, Fox business side, which I, I started watching many, many, many years ago. And so I would say there's a big difference between their daytime programming and their nighttime program, programming. That's what Joe Scarborough and Mika Ken, I don't know. There's a scene in the Grinch, you know, when he's beating himself to death and he's, he sticks his head between the giant symbols and starts smashing them and everything. That's what I want to do whenever I hear Joe Scarborough and, and, and Mika carrying them. So um, that's I, I'm, I'm just that's what that's where I am. I still think they uh, do some really good stuff with the news during their daytime uh, program, and then certainly Brett Baer is, is is top of the top of the heat. Like you say, I'm appreciate that. You know, I did feel that way, like the Grinch with the sun, and I was, I was inspired. I mean, I kind of liked the way I felt. I wanted to yell and scream at Mika and Joe and Steve Ratner and some of these other. I mean, Al Sharpton was on a couple of weeks talking about the only reason the president from Harvard got fired is she's, you know, um, she's an African American female. It's misogynist and it's racist. It forget plagiarism and anti-Semitism. I mean, you know, if if you're if you're you know African American or female, you should be exempt from any of those. Um, any of those um, cases or, or um, I don't know, uh, factors that play into the equation of whether someone should be allowed to keep their job or not. I'll say this. I do know that there are talented people at Fox. Why don't you have those people on the network when most folks are home watching television? I mean, I've looked at some of the viewership numbers. There's a big decline during the day. The majority of Americans are out doing their thing, making their way, trying to pay their bills. There are some that don't work, but 60, what, 65% of working age Americans go to work every day. I've just always wondered if you've got these talented news people and you profess to be a news channel, put some of these talented news people when people aren't at work, you know, trying to earn a living. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamar. Good morning, Charles. Hey, good morning. To, to counter, and Happy New Year, by the way, to uh, counter what uh, the Reverend Sharpton said, that woman at Harvard got her job because she was a black female. She didn't lose her job for that reason. But that's uh, neither here nor there. You guys are experts at what you do. And I know that uh, Dave has been in the radio business a long time and understands the radio. And Ken, you've been in politics for a while and you understand politics. And I'm just a salesperson, but I know a little bit about marketing. And I thought I was thinking about a call that you got early yesterday morning. And I think back to the late 70s, back, y'all remember when Garrett Morris was on Saturday Night Live? I do. And they did the weekend update, and he would do it for the hard of hearing. The newscaster, who was, I think, Chevy Chase at that time, would would say something, and Garrett Morris would be in a little corner screen, and he would yell Yell at the top of his lungs. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) For the hard of hearing. Well, what I thought might be an idea, and I don't know, again, you all are the experts, I'm not, 
But maybe, just maybe, Wake Up Carolina could hire Garrett Morris so that when you get some of these phone calls, he could yell out to the audience what that means, what that person is trying to say, and give an English translation. (laughs) Just a thought. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. I detected, as usual, a bit of sarcasm in some of of Charles' comments. Um, (laughs) Some of these, I mean, yeah, I mean, some callers sometimes make me want to pull my hair out. I mean, but I'm sure I make you want to pull your hair out uh, at, at some point in time. Um, it's the give and take. It's the yin and yang. It's the back and forth. Um, I, 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 maybe the bent gene in me. Look, guys, if you decide to get in politics, or you decide to host a let, let's 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 a semi-controversial radio show, you've made a decision to not not be the most popular guy in town. You don't get into this seeking unanimous popularity. You just don't. I mean, you're choosing a side. When I give an opinion over the airways, I understand some agree, some disagree. So I've given up on trying to be the most popular guy in town. Um, Rev and I have this conversation about enlightenment and entertainment. I think Glenn Beck says, you know, the convergence of enlightenment and entertainment. I mean, I think as, as weird as I think Beck can be, I mean, I think he's got that right. I mean, that is the recipe. Where is the sweet spot between semi-enlightenment, education, uh, and entertainment? And I do think there are times we do that well. I think there are times we suck at it. Um, we do it better when you help us. It's, it's so interesting to me. When Larry called in yesterday, I mean, my mind's going a million miles an hour. I'm listening. I'm thinking. I'm writing. I'm doing all these things. And we talked about what was but isn't anymore. But for a long time, people believed it still was. And I was thinking Craftsman Tool. And then Larry calls in and talks about, you know, the day that they started selling Craftsman at somewhere other than Sears was the day he knew that they had kind of sold their soul and tried to be something other than, than what they really were. Um, I mean, that, 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 that's not an intellectual. Craftsman Tool is not an intellectual issue. But the ability to make a connection between Craftsman and Harvard, I think, is the convergence of enlightenment and entertainment. Um, very few of us will ever, ever, ever go on the campus in, um, in Cambridge. I mean, you ever been there? I've not, I mean, I've read about it. I've studied about it. the nicest campus I've ever been on in my life was the most academically inclined campus I've ever, or the university I've ever played in sports. And I'm talking about Vanderbilt. Um, we went to Nashville one year and I wanted to walk the campus of Vanderbilt. Cause I was told if you walk the campus of Vanderbilt, you absorb some of the intelligentsia. Uh, I don't think I did, but it was it was a little it was pretty awesome. I mean, it was. I mean, at Vanderbilt would be uh, as elite a university as Northerners will allow a Southern university to be. I'm thinking of Vandy and Duke. You know, Vanderbilt has a cheer at their football games. Uh, uh, Josh, you know what it is? That's all right. That's okay. Y'all will work for us one day. Um, they've accepted their you know their, their relevant <laughs> stature in the SEC. You know, hey, well you beat a fifty-eight to three in football, but. But wait, wait to those graduates of Alabama who didn't go to the NFL need a job in corporate America. They're going to bump into a Vanderbilt graduate down south um, sooner or later. I just, what, I guess, in essence, the argument I'm making is I wish conservative media took itself more seriously than it did. I wish America first realized how many, in, I don't know, intellectual tentacles there are connected and attached to what I argue is the path forward for the GOP 
and the most passionate political movement in America today. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, we're talking about uh, talk radio and the political, uh, what did I call it, political entertainment industry. Um, Fox News is not what it once was. Craftsman not what it once was. Um, Harvard is not what it once was. Rand Paul, and I thought of you, Rev, when I read this story. Rand Paul wants to kill um, the electric vehicle incentive subsidies unless um, there, there. Remember, we talked about some of the EVs and AM radio, and right. you would know better than I yep. some of the frequency problems they have. In other words, if a if an AM radio is on, it does something to the electrical circuitry of the electric um, vehicle. Ed Markey, I mean, if you don't believe that some liberal Democrats believe government should intervene in the affairs of everything, everywhere, everybody involved, Ed Markey is a Democrat senator from Massachusetts. He introduced the AM for Every Vehicle Act. And, um, I mean, he's basically saying that this, if we, if we pass this law, it keeps the AM radio relevant. If not, it becomes a relic of the past. Um, I mean, you would know better than I mm-hmm. the relevancy of um, the resiliency of AM radio. But I thought about you when I read this, um, and and Markey's press release says the market currently provides some cars that have AM radio and others that do not. Um, the the Ed Markey's of the world believe the federal government should require auto manufacturers to put in um, AM radios, whether people use it or not. Supporters of the AM for Every Vehicle Act contend that the service is necessary for public safety and that it communicates information about driving conditions and extreme weather Um Rand Paul says that he will kill every EV bill if Markey's amendment passes. It, Rand, well, Rand Paul's a libertarian. I mean, sure. he says, let car builders build what they want to buy or build what they want to build. But what Rand Paul has decided, this is the opportunity he sees as a libertarian to muck up the relationship EVs have with the um, with the auto industry. In other words, if Markey... <laughs> And Ted Cruz is for this. I mean, this is kind of start politics makes strange bedfellows. Yeah. Ted Cruz is supportive of making the auto manufacturers include AM radio. Cruz says that AM radio is still a place where conservatives go to listen to conservative talk radio in areas that aren't as dominated. Uh, in other words, if you're living in New York City, I mean, you can tell you better than I, Reb, but if you live in New York City and there's an AM signal broadcasting I mean, let's hypothetically say the Rush Limbaugh show. And, you know, he's got millions of listeners on the AM frequency. Paul is basically saying, I'm not going to make anybody, I'm not going to allow the government to be a part of dictating what auto manufacturers must or must not include in their vehicle. But but if they don't include the AM radio, I'm taking their their um their subsidies or incentives away. Well, what is your take on that? I mean, is AM still relevant? It is. It is. I mean, your radio guy. Of course, you to say that. I'm going to be biased, obviously. But first of all, I'll point out that right now, your voice and this show are being heard on several AM stations. 
across South Carolina. But are people listening? Yeah, of course they are. Okay. Yeah. Because if something happens and they go off, you get a call. Hey, uh, you know, twelve sixties off or whatever the n- the number is, and you know whatever we we get an alert or whatever that it goes off. But people will let us know if there's a problem. So yes, uh, AM radio is still relevant. There's a there's a, of course a radio history of AM. AM was before FM, right? Okay. So um, there's a lot of emergency alert system notifications that are built in to AM radio. Um, so absolutely, it's relevant, it's important, it's part of American history, and uh, I'm with Marky. So so you would be a co-sponsor <laughs> of the Democrat from Massachusetts? <laughs> sure. <laughs> because you worked in radio all your life, right. as Charles as Charles was. I just found it interesting um, that Rand Paul wants to kill EV subsidies if we include the mandatory AM proviso, or it's an amendment uh, to the bill. And Marky basically is saying that, you know, it's a popular communication tool now Marky's 80 years old as everybody else seems to be in our, and for in a our long nation's time, capital a lot of the now 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 speaking specifically to talk radio you know talk for a long time i think to one of maybe ted cruz's points or whatever uh am was really the only place where radio stations would program talk programming um and so you know rush or a show like this was only available on the am dial why was markets. that there was some I mean, of the market hadn't adopted talk radio as of yet well and and you know fm has a certain you know quality that that is you know music sounds good on fm radio and maybe it doesn't sound as good on am radio dolby yeah i remember the old dolby you could press the button on your home entertainment center turn on the dolby turn on the dolby sound better yeah you'd have a you know like like especially got a chick with you you know you press that dolby who do you know has one of those (laughs) you know what i mean we can listen to music in Dolby, if we choose. <laughs> like, I don't know what, what, what it is. Thomas Dolby, right? I mean, he was the guy that no, designed the. No. Thomas Dolby sang She Blinded Me with Science. There you go. Thomas was, Dolby sang She Blinded Roy, Me. Ray Dolby, Roy, Roy Dolby, maybe. And brother, sister, cousin, <laughs> nephew, niece. One of, one of those Dolby. Different Dolby, did, for did sure. Some cool things. Yeah. Listen to Blinded Me with Science in Dolby is like listening to Meek and Joe. And I feel like the Grinch <laughs> with the tambourines. On both sides of my head. Anyway, AM AM radio is important. It's relevant, and and I think go Ed Markey, go right. I think it needs to res, res with a liberal Democrat from Massachusetts. I do want to mention real quick that I woke up this morning to a text message from my friend Brian Braddock, and I was a bit upset with City Council yesterday for this opt-in, opt-out. I let it play out. I'm proud of myself. I didn't respond didn't post on Facebook, didn't do anything on Twitter. I just let it play out. There were a lot of people offering a lot of different opinions. Um, I woke up to a text message from Brian um, about changing his mind and, and believing he made a mistake and was wanting to correct that mistake. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I'll confirm this as the show progresses. I'm going to try to get Brian Quez McCall, a Republican and a Democrat from city council to come on the show tomorrow and kind of address our audience as to why they did what they did. You threw did. out that invitation on the air yesterday. Well, I mean, and I'm, I'm, I'm honored. I mean, I'm honored Bryden would, uh, would take me up on it, and Shaquez, I think, is going to join us as well. And I think they've um, they found some sort of common ground compromise. It's not that people – I mean, I, I'm not trying to stop people from being charitable. That's the misnomer. That's the misunderstanding here. There's nothing about people who oppose this. I really believe that it could borderline on not being legal. I mean, I think if you carried it to court – it's just it's an expansive government that I'm just certainly not comfortable with. Some people made val- – who collects the money? What percentage do they keep? 
Um, who do we decide? Who decides why the bill is delinquent? I mean, who makes the call on catching the bill up? I mean, what if they're three months in arrears and and they're just not paying their water bill? I mean, in other words, there were a lot of unanswered questions there. And if you choose to opt in, you've accepted some of that liability and responsibility. I mean, you have. If you say, okay, I'll allow the city to round up my water bill to the nearest dollar to help those who haven't paid their water bill, and I honestly don't care why they've not paid it. I just want them to have their water reconnected. Okay, have at it. I mean, that, that's liberal government, but people believe in liberal government. My problem was and is with the involuntary nature of what the city did. You had to opt out. They opted you in. You had to take out action to opt out. And fundamentally, I'm opposed to that expansion of government. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I, I see there's two different issues, you know, the AM radios and the electric vehicles. Um, emission, did, you ever, did you ever listen to an AM radio and drive your car and you go under power lines and, you know, it would get distortion and it would go, Nyeh. Oh, yeah, yep. the, the good old days. Yep. Yeah, the good old days. Well, the electric vehicle, as I understand it, puts off the same kind of emissions, which make receiving AM radios difficult because the car itself generates the interference. So to stop that, they would have to put a lot of money to try to block that emissions from the vehicle so that AM would work. Um, but I understand why Rand Paul would want AM because amplitude modulation, which is what AM is, travels much farther than FM radio or you know, broadband or your 5G will transmit. So in a national emergency, if they want to get out a signal or, you know, messages to the people, they're going to do that in the AM band, which means your car is going to need AM. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, that's kind of an interesting, all all I know about AM radio, I mean, I know about AM radio. I grew up with AM radio, but I remember, and Rev would know the station, the Cincinnati Reds Mm -hmm. played in a land far, far away. But on certain nights, I could hear Marty Brenneman and Joe Nuxall broadcast the game from Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. And at my young age, I'm thinking to myself, I can't pick up the station in Columbia, but I can pick up the station in Cincinnati. One of these days, I want to be old and smart enough to understand that. <laughs> now, now, Rev has informed me about tropis, tropospheric ducting and all these other atmospheric conditions. <laughs> yeah, that's an that, FM thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is a thing. Yeah. And, and coming back from the beach some days, I can pick up 95.3 some places, and other days I pick it up in different places. But all I know about AM radio is as a young kid, I could lay in the bed and listen to the Cincinnati Reds on the AM station out of Cincinnati, Ohio, couldn't pick up the AM station in a neighboring county. And you were listening to 700 WLW, the big one, in Cincinnati, Ohio. No, well, I mean, I grew up, grew up in Cincinnati, and Tony's exactly right. It's the interference uh, of receiving an AM signal. You can't. I, I assume there must be electronic interference that's generated by the powering of the electric vehicle that interfe- interferes with a you know, distant reception of a station, and therefore there'd be some advanced filtering they'd have to try to do to make it be able to be received within the vehicle. That's, Just don't that's put an AM radio in an electric car. Yeah, but then, but then you know you're you're kind of to to 
Also, to Tony's point, I mean, there are times in national emergency, and you're like 700 WOW, and there's many stations across the country that are what they call clear channel stations. They they get out because other local stations have to turn off the air in the evening, and so the AM signals kind of, they, they hug the curvature of the earth, unlike FM, which is straight line, and that's why they, what's that look? If it's 2024, right, and you lose your life because of some natural disaster, because you weren't made aware by AM radio. I'm sorry. We have an obligation to keep up, right? Yeah, I but mean, what's the first thing? As, it, as human beings progress, it is your obligation to trail along at whatever pace you choose. But I have no sympathy for somebody in 2024 who was caught off guard by a natural disaster because AM radio was not there to inform them or help them. I mean, what does it do? Bouncing off the caves? While they're eating raw meat. That's all you got there. There was a recent, the most recent example was Hurricane Hugo. I remember that very well. There was a time late at night when local radio stations, a lot of South Carolina in particular, were off the air. And there were distant AM stations that were the only way, the only voice you heard getting information. That was a third of a century ago. That's right. Things have changed. Yeah, but you lose power. You lose your internet. Use your cell phone, maybe? Uh, I'll stand by my, if you lose your, anyway, we'll take a break. We'll be back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning. Hey, how are you doing today? Hey, Anthony. <laughs> okay, I ain't going around with it um, today, though, but I want to say, first of all, Ken, um, it is kind of intimidating to call your show. I mean, even though I got my own podcast, it took me a, a few times to call your show because I don't know if you can be you more intimidating though, but one time whenever you and Jeff get to talking, probably the third time, now please Jeff get the best of you and you got a little salty and that slow me down and call you because I ain't want to call you and you get salty on me because you got the power of the mic. Well, if you get but, the best of me, I'm going to get salty. <laughs> <laughs> But I do love hearing the callers call in, and you be like, the, you know, the mediator or giving your opinion of what they're talking about. I mean, I do like the politicians a little bit, though, but I do love whenever the callers um, call in. Like yesterday, you had an older man call in and an older woman. I wish you could mediate them in a conversation. It was about Israel, and you were naming some stuff about what was going on. And then she called back saying, you know, they had, the reason they had the big dome around it is because, you know, people trying to kill us. But one thing I caught on that is that he said that the occupation is just like the way the pilgrims or the Europeans did to the Indians, and she didn't discuss that. And my question is that are there a lot of people that, well, you know I'm black, so are there a lot of white people that, that don't feel that it was wrong, the occupation of what they did to the Indians? Because if you think about it, it's the same thing as, uh, what they did to the Indians, like he said, is what's going on in Palestine. And I thought everybody thought that was bad, though. But I guess some people think that it was a good thing that they came to America and did the same thing that they did to them. They took a small part of the land, East Coast, and they ran them back further and further. Then they tried to, they come up with reasons to kill them, you know, to say what they did to the Indians, though. But my question is, do... People think that it's a good thing for us. What, I mean, it's a good thing now, but what's the evil what they've done back in the day to the Indians? Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. 
Anthony illustrates to me something, and he's talking about Daphne and Sam from Darlington yesterday. Kind of, um, I don't know, has some disagreeable moments uh, in their indirect conversation one with another. In other words, Sam called in and offered up an opinion. Daphne called in and kind of contradicted um, Sam's opinion. I mean, I, don't get your feelings hurt. I mean, when you when you when you call a radio show and give your opinion, you you become fair game. I mean, you just do. Your opinion is out there. You've had the courage to express your opinion to the public domain. Somebody disagrees with you. The point I want to make on, and this is where I think the, I mean, this is what really, this is almost exhilarating to me, Josh, is when we start having these non-soundbody conversations. And, and I, I'll give you two examples. There is no way that Daphne nor Sam can address the 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 centuries old situation of the the Jews and Palestinians. There is no bumper sticker answer to that. There's no bumper sticker answer to the Confederacy. I mean, if I defend the Confederacy in some way, shape, or form, the media in a soundbite says I'm a you know a slavery sympathizer. There, there, you can't. I mean, it, we you get nervous about going there. In other words, I'd just rather let that be. I mean, if, if I'm in, in the public square and I've got an opinion about Jews and Palestinians, I'd rather not even go there because, once again, it's too complicated for the soundbite. And we refuse to have these serious debates that are required to better understand our opinions on s- some of these issues that are unbelievably complicated and complex. I believe with every fiber in my being that slavery was wrong. It was an abomination. It was reprehensible. It was disgusting. But that's not all the Confederacy was about. That there were many other things attached to the to the South believing it was defending its independence, its liberty, its sovereignty, its anti-central planning. But but if you go down that road, the media in a soundbite says the guy running for governor of Florida, the governor of South Carolina, the, the radio show host. It doesn't matter if I'm a radio host because uh, I'm expected to be a bit provocative. But but you can't, you can't, I mean, if you're running for office, Rev, and you can't discuss something in a soundbite, your advisors and consultants are probably better off saying, just don't go there. I, I want to go there, man. It's an important issue. The Jews and Palestinians are a very important global issue. Yeah, but you can't answer the soundbites. And if you can't answer the soundbite, there's a chance you say something that could be misconstrued, misinterpreted, or, or spun. And we're afraid to have these conversations that, that are so necessary and warranted and needed to develop a better understanding of some of these very complicated matters. Some aren't that complicated. Some can be answered in a soundbite, but some can't. And most Americans are afraid to go down that road. I mean, I'll be honest, I'll say it. The majority of America is too lazy to go down that road. It requires some intellectual effort. Well, what do you mean? I got to read and think. I don't want to read and think. I'd rather watch Fox and MSNBC and somebody tell me what to believe. The, the Confederacy, the Jews and Palestinians, the Federal Reserve, uh, th- th- there's a lot of these things that are just complicated and complex and require an element of effort. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll get back to the callers in just a few moments. For the first time in 2024, we're joined by Great Television's Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, John Decker. Good morning, sir. How are you? 
Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Happy New Year to you. Hope you had a great break, a great Christmas, and uh, I hope you have a really nice 2024 uh, even better than 2023. Well, 2024 will be an interesting year because there's an it election toward the end of the year yeah. that'll be, I, I know we always say, John, this is the biggest election in the history of mankind, but this, <laughs> I mean, th- there's right. a lot kicking in this election. And one thing we're dealing with today that I never imagined we deal with is a candidate being taken off the ballot in certain states, an eventual decision we believe will be made by a Supreme Court. Where are we in all that, John? Well, here's where we are. Let's talk first about Maine. Uh, The president's lawyers have filed an appeal with the Maine Superior Court uh, as it relates to the decision by the Maine Secretary of State to take Donald Trump off the ballot in Maine. Uh, And a decision by the Maine Superior Court by law must be made by January the 17th. And, of course, there could be an appeal from that decision. Let's go now to the U.S. Supreme Court. Lawyers for Donald Trump have filed an appeal from a decision by the Colorado Supreme Court to take him off the ballot in Colorado. And I would imagine that the U.S. Supreme Court will take up this matter relatively quickly and uh, put forward a ruling, a decision on this relatively quickly. The reason being is because time is of the essence. Colorado and Maine, they both have their primaries on the same exact day. It's March the 5th. It's Super Tuesday. So you really need to get some clarity on this issue, not only for those two states, but for any other states that are contemplating removing Donald Trump from their primary ballot. John, can the court answer the questions that have already been asked and ones that may eventually come? Does the court have to rule specifically on Maine and then Colorado and then if another state or two, or can the court issue an all-encompassing decision? Well, the Supreme Court can make a ruling on essentially an all-encompassing decision that would uh, affect every state in the country. Uh, And so that's why uh, we do need clarity on this particular issue. Uh, And if the Supreme Court rules uh, in a way that permits Donald Trump to remain on the ballot uh, in Colorado and any other state, that does away with the issue as it relates to Maine or any other state that's contemplating removing Trump from the ballot. Now, uh, the Supreme Court will not take up uh, issues of what we call fact. You know, in other words, they won't revisit whether or not Donald Trump uh, engaged in insurrection, which is the determination by the Colorado Supreme Court. Instead, uh, they'll focus on legal procedures and legal matters and uh, whether or not the Constitution permits the action that the Colorado Supreme Court has taken. I want to shift gears and go to an issue. I mean, I love to get everything I want. I learned in politics that's hardly ever, ever possible. I'm not real keen on additional Ukrainian funding, but I, but I do want to do a better job of securing our border. Is, is there a deal to be made? Those that believe we're not investing wisely helping Ukraine defend themselves and those who believe we're not investing wisely and adding more dollars to our to our border security. I mean, I know what I want, John, but I'm not king of the world and no member of Congress is. So where are we in a compromise of additional funding for Ukraine and more border security? Well, towards the end of 2023, there was a joint statement put out by the two leaders of the Senate, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell. That's rare. You rarely see a joint statement in which they indicated that progress was being made. And we also got word uh, yesterday from one of those negotiators, uh, Senator Cinema of Arizona, that additional progress has been made. So we're inching towards uh, getting to the point where there could be a compromise agreement coming out of the Senate that would provide 
uh, funding for Ukraine, funding for Israel, as well as not only funding for increased border security, but changes in U.S. immigration policy. That's one of the big holdups is uh, what do those changes look like? But I think we're going to get there. I I do. I do believe that uh, ultimately it's in the interests of all of the senators uh, and the White House uh, that, you know, are involved in these discussions. If it gets out of the Senate, it goes then to the House and it will be up to, you know, members of the House, particularly Republicans, to decide whether those compromises are satisfactory to them. And that's an unknown as to whether or not uh, what comes out of the Senate will pass muster in the House. And, John, one thing you have an opportunity that most of us will never is to yell a question at a president. <laughs> I think you you asked the president about the border, and he gave a response to kind of main uh, – it went viral in some of the social media. W- w- walk us through that logistically, that episode, in both your – um, you know, your job as a reporter and and the president's job in addressing the public. Well, sure. This is Tuesday night. So this is a day before the House Speaker and 60 other House Republicans traveled to Eagle Pass, Texas, to see the problem firsthand of the mass migration coming to the U.S.-Mexico border. Tuesday night, the president was coming back from his vacation. Marine One lands on the South Lawn. The president, the first lady are walking from Marine One to the residents at the White House, and that's when I had an opportunity to uh, shout a question to the president, uh, which was, what are you going to do uh, about the border crisis? And uh, he uh, responded. You know, he only responded to one question, and it was my question. He said, we've got to do something, but then can he put the onus on Republicans, uh, saying that they need uh, or ought to provide more funding uh, in order for him to protect the border? So that's been the line coming from the White House all this week when questions are posed as it relates uh, to what we've seen happen at the U.S.-Mexico border, 300,000 migrants intercepted by U.S. border officials just last month alone, 2.6 million intercepted in all of 2023. So you uh, certainly uh, anybody would acknowledge that this is not a problem that can sustain itself. I got to ask you this because I'm such a hillbilly. Is reporter <laughs> is, is reporter etiquette that much different inside the White House opposed to on the lawn? I mean, you would never yell a question in you know a, a White House press conference, but is etiquette and decorum that much different when you're outside and, and the president is not as close or a representative is not as close? Yeah, I think that's right. I I, I agree with you. You know, I mean, uh, you probably can't even play the clip because there's all this helicopter noise in the background it's it's tough to make out when the networks played that clip they had to have some subtitles in terms of what the president said so you can make it out but i think that's right i think that that etiquette is a little bit different when you're talking about that type of environment uh versus an environment of at a formal press conference where you would not just you know uh, stand up from your seat and yell something at the president. I don't think that would be proper, regardless of who the president is. Yeah, you made an SEC football fan proud in the way you asked that uh, that, that question. <laughs> John, last question. John Decker is a great television senior national editor, White House correspondent, joining us for the first time in 2024. You mentioned Ukrainian funding. You mentioned the Biden or the border and the problem there. What are the other priorities of Congress? I think they go back to work next week, if I'm not mistaken. What do you perceive some of the priorities to be? Well, one is making certain there's not a government shutdown. Uh, That could happen on January the 19th. That's the deadline when funding would run out for four major federal departments. 
Uh, and there's another deadline that would happen on February the 2nd. The rest of the federal government could shut down, including uh, uh, areas related to the Department of Defense and also the Department of Homeland Security. So they need to strike a deal to make certain that, that there is no government shutdown. I think that they uh, will ultimately do that. You know how things work there, Ken. Sometimes they just kick the can down the road for another date. The other big issue is uh, what we just discussed, that security bill. And they're making progress there. Uh, we'll see if uh, progress can further be made in uh, the, the first week they're back, which is next week. Uh, but those are the two big issues that are on the plate for Congress as they return from their break. John, as usual, great information, great job. We certainly appreciate it. Happy New Year, and uh, and we'll walk through this election year together. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Ken. Have a great day, uh, great rest of your day, and we'll talk real soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. John Decker, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent, uh, kind of the insider's insider to what happens inside um. <laughs> The body politic in our in our nation's capital. I liked your question about the shouting inside. Well, I mean, I, there's got to be a different etiquette, but of course there is. You know, you're out on the lawn, the helicopter, and in, in the backdrop. I, I want to know this as well. I don't want to put John on the spot. I mean, if you're a if you're a newbie, you got to be careful, right? I mean, if you're an old hand, you've been around the block. I would imagine you can play a little loose and fast with some of the protocols. I don't know that, um, but I mean, I got to believe if you just graduated from Harvard. Um, and you get to the New York Times, and they dispatch you to the White House press corps, you got to be a little more careful and guarded about your reputation and what you're willing to expose yourself to. If you've been there as long as John has, I mean, you kind of know the joint better than the president does. I mean, the president's come and go. I mean, Decker's there. You know, he's, True. I think he said he's reported on president since, since Bill, Bill Clinton. Clinton right. And I understand his perspective is very often – not in agreement with the majority of our listeners. I get that. I am well aware of that. But it's an interesting perspective nonetheless. And I remain committed to finding people who don't share our disposition, don't share our perspectives. That's how we all get better. And his reporting is more journalistic. I mean, he's, he's reporting on news. And as you see, he's he's in that bubble, though. So, so that's kind of the perspective that it comes from. Every now and then, he'll give a little slanted version yeah. of his perspective. Yeah, we, we've had some disagreements well, for we sure. We have, we have. And uh, to your other point, though, I seem to remember during some official inside the White House press conferences, there were times when, and I'm thinking of Jim Acosta in particular, he would stand up and point his finger and raise his voice at President Trump. Well, he, he, he got what he wanted. He got his own show on CNN. Sure. I mean, that's what he was after. Mission accomplished. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Looks like uh, Mike Page, our chairman of the Florence County GOP, is on the line. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dave. Hey, Ken. Hope you guys are doing well. I've, I've enjoyed the show this morning for sure. Um, but the 2024 year is kicking off, and uh, our first monthly meeting that the Florence County Republican Party is having is normally on Tuesday at the McClinigan Annex um, on Dargan Street, but it's Monday. They had a scheduling conflict, and that's changed. So it's not Tuesday. It is going to be this Monday. Uh, but you need to come. We've got a representative from the Nikki Haley campaign going to be there. Uh, they'll speak for a few minutes. We're going to have our county council chairman and some of the other county councilmen there tell us what's going on in Florence. Um, so you can get to come out, meet them, and talk to those. Uh, it's going to be an incredible pretty incredible year. Ken, you mentioned a while ago that every election is important, and um, anytime we get a chance to choose the
people who sit at the table that make decisions that affect our lives, that's the most important thing we need to be doing. This um, city council water uh, roundup thing is a, a case in point. The people who sit at those tables and make those decisions, we put them there. We either put them there by sitting home and not voting, or we uh, put them there by getting out and working. And I also want to introduce um, our what we're going to be doing as a Florence County Republican Party this year. It's going to be, it's a, I, don't, I hate calling it a program, whatever, but it's called First in Line, First in Liberty, First for Florence, because we're going to be pushing early voting. This voting on one day is, we've got to change our mind about that. The law gives us two weeks now. And we have got to get everybody there, and there's no reason why we can't. So, but first in line, first in Liberty, Florence first, come out Monday night, 7 o'clock at the McLennigan and help us put Republicans, conservative Republicans, in office. And I appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate all the work you do. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we're famous for saying this is the biggest election of our lifetime. Here's the difference in this election, and some like it, some don't like it. There's an active movement to keep one guy from running. I mean, I don't, in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like, forget whether you like Trump or not. I mean, there's an active movement, and you can say it's justified or not. You can say, well, my interpretation of the 14th Amendment, you know, uh, Section 3 says this, or my inter-, but, I mean, never before have we seen an active movement trying to keep one guy off the ballot. That's bizarre to me. That, that Once again, that's unprecedented in my lifetime. I've got no idea what happened pre-Civil War. I mean, I've not studied that enough to know. I don't know, man. And then 1826, there was an act of 1822. and 18, I don't have any idea what happened back then. I mean, I was born late December back in 63, and I've never seen an active movement as motivated and funded as this movement is to keep one guy off the ballot. That's going to make this election more intriguing to me. There's going to be storylines. There's going to be good days and bad days and ebbs and flows. Ramaswamy has done Trump a favor. And it's not the way you think it is. Ramaswamy appears to be kind of Trump surrogate. What Ramaswamy has done is say things even more provocative than Trump. And it softens Trump, whether he wants to be softened up or not. It's almost like I mean, the, the latest. I, you saw Ramaswamy on Tucker Carlson's podcast. Ramaswamy believes that the GOP is behind keeping Trump off the ballot. It's the war machine. It's the neocons. That It's the trillion-dollar defense budget. I know it's $880 billion, but, you know, it, it's about a trillion inside and outside. When you count retirement for Pentagon officials, and it's, it's about a trillion dollars in recurring revenue. One trillion dollars in recurring revenue. You, that doesn't go by the wayside without a big scrap. I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, if you're if you're in the military industrial complex and you're counting on one trillion dollars a year coming into the coffers in some way, shape, or form, you're not gonna sit on your ass and let them take that away from you. You just aren't. And America first is kind of a non-interventionist movement. What what is the big hold up now with the border? I mean, the neocons want money for Ukraine. The America Firsters say, I want money for the border. I'm more worried about my kid, grandkid, dying from a fentanyl overdose 
or some rogue agent coming across the border than I am the march of communism. But, but Ramaswamy says these things that historically would have been perceived as so outlandish and so out of the mainstream, it softens Trump. Trump's not saying the craziest things in the GOP primary today. Ramaswamy is saying the craziest things, and he's so articulate. He's so well-spoken. The one thing Barack Obama has that very few human beings on this planet has is a cadence, a delivery, um, an element of um, just seriousness. He's cerebral, right? I mean, once again, I disagree with everything that comes out the man's mouth. I think he's a dangerous man, a, a, an incredibly dangerous. I think Obama's still as dangerous as a former president as he was president. But you can't deny his skill. And one of his great abilities is to speak. Ramaswamy has some of that in him. He's unbelievably well-spoken. The first time I heard Ramaswamy speak, I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. I mean, he, he has such a concise delivery, and he's unapologetic. I mean, he doesn't do what I do. I'm a good old boy, so you know what I'll say? Well, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but here's how I feel. I mean, if you notice, when I say these kind of cutting things, I'll, I'll always preface it, and I go back to my mom. I mean, it's hard to be mean up close. So, so I, you know, I'm going to say something mean, but I don't want anybody to be mad with me now because I want to be loved, and I'm a Southern boy, and you know how we are. And, you know, we roll up new cigarettes in our sleeves, and you know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, we're not out to, to, to cause any problem. Here's just what we believe. Ramaswamy is just unapologetic. I mean, it's in your face. It's, um, and he said on the Tucker Carlson uh, broadcast or podcast that, this is not the Democrats after Trump. I mean, this is the GOP. This is the war machine. It's bipartisan. I mean, I think he called it the managerial class. Probably, that's probably a good way to explain it. It's not driven by ideology or philosophy. It's not driven by small government, big government. It's driven by the do-re-mi of a trillion dollars that goes to the military-industrial complex annually. And they're worried that if America first really becomes the preferred ideology of the GOP, there won't be as much need to spend a trillion dollars on building a war machine that I would argue, and I'll get in trouble when I say this, has probably made the world as equally unstable as it has stable. I mean, when you look at global instability, I want to get Josh's take on this in the next hour, maybe after this break. When you look at global instability, has America and its war machine been a net negative or net positive to global instability. I mean, I understand that, that America has an obligation and responsibility post-Second World War to kind of lead. I mean, I'll accept that. Leading means a lot of different things in a lot of different places to a lot of different people. We chose to build an empire, and we chose to kind of utilize that empire to make things happen a certain way in places uh, domestic and, and abroad. Um, so when Ramaswamy says that, a lot of Republicans go, damn. <laughs> pretty wild. Well, it makes what Trump says less wild. And that serves a very important purpose. It, it, it does softens it not? him up a little wow. bit with some of the independents. Yeah. Uh, you know, Trump. Good point. Well, I mean, the, the independent voter go, did you hear what Ramaswamy said? Trump would have never said that. I mean, imagine that. I mean, imagine an independent voter saying, he's, he's, he's a little further out there than Trump <laughs> I, is. I've heard that before. Uh, on, on some of the, um, some of the rigidity or some of the, some of the hardness or harshness. Or just, I've heard people say he, he's more Trump than Trump. Uh, I mean, I've heard that a lot and I think it softens Trump up a little bit Interesting. and makes him more appealing and attractive to the soccer mom, the, uh, you know, the, the Seinfeld watcher that he'll need in some way, shape or form. 
uh, come election time. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Everything I say is from a very unofficial uh, status. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't, you know, Mike Page called in as chairman of the Republican Party. Brian Braddock will be with us tomorrow to talk about some of the issues addressing all, Philip, Jay, and Mike will be here tomorrow. They all talk from an official capacity. I once spoke as a government official, an official of the Republican Party, and it's not as liberated. you got to be a little more careful and guarded, and it ain't as fun, to be honest with you. <laughs> but the one thing we've tried to do here is organize a, a way for Republican officials, and Democrats for that matter, but Republicans by and large come on here to speak directly to their constituents, their voters, their supporters, their donors, and that's an honor for me to uh, for me to be a part of. And 2024 is going to be a big year. And I, and I'll go back to what I said a second ago, Rev. And I mean this: from the time I got in politics, I was always told this election is the biggest election ever. You know that this election is bigger. I this is different. I don't know how much bigger it is, but this is different because there are people actively trying to take a front runner of the Republican Party off the ballot. Does that make it more consequential? Does that make it a bigger election than 2016? 20? I don't have any idea. We'll find out in due time. But I do know that there is an organized effort to take the GOP front runner off the ballot. That makes 2024 very different. Bigger? We'll see. Different? Hell yeah. Without question, this is an oddity that we hardly ever encounter. Somebody who has to speak as an official, and um, and but I don't think they're guarded about it. I think they let their guard down when they come on and, and tell you what they believe is Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party. Drew is with us this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Man, I am doing well, rested and relaxed from the new year. I trust you are too. Uh, I am. I um, might have drank too much, but anyway, that's that's the story for for another day. Drew, is this? I mean, we're talking about big election, the consequential elections, yeah. and and, and nation altering elections. But this is different yeah. because not only do we have a guy running for president as a Republican, we have an activist agency somewhere somehow trying to take him off the ballot. That does make it different, yeah. Drew. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a couple of things. First off, uh, you mentioned, you know, it seems like in every cycle, everybody says, well, this is the most important election in our lifetime. And usually I would say it's because it is. And, you know, why is because you constantly have uh, a, a you have a growing, uh, you know, radical leftist contingent within the Democrat Party over the years, which in every election cycle, essentially are ramping up the consequences because, you know, a left is constantly pushing, uh, whether it's society, culture, government, institutions, et cetera, in a more radical liberal direction, attacking, undermining things that we thought were sort of foundational givens that really weren't up for debate. And with each cycle, as that goes forward, then it ramps up the consequences of the next election. So I would say, first off, yes, this is the most important election in our lifetime. And two, you're exactly right. This is different in the sense that you have that crowd now working not just to try to win elections and undermine the culture as they've been doing, but now to try to actively prevent people from being able to choose a particular candidate, in this case, uh, that happens to be, as far as primaries are concerned, on our side, the leading candidate. 
from the ballot and people to not have the choice to vote for that candidate. We've seen what happened is happening in Colorado, what just happened in Maine several days ago with Secretary of State there. And the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to step in and settle this for the entire country because you can't have one unelected bureaucrat in Maine or a court, a uh, Democrat court in Colorado, or pick your state where you have these other issues, uh, to be able to decide who people do or do not get to vote for. Uh, you know, Here in South Carolina, we've had the same thing happen. We had an individual from the state of Texas uh, file a suit against the State Election Commission and against the State Republican Party. Uh, we fought back against that uh, in uh, federal court. And our filing deadline uh, for the presidential primaries uh, was this past Friday, uh, you know, with uh, to, to turning our names and certify them rather to the State Election Commission. That date was this past Friday. And the federal district court had yet to actually rule on his, you know, uh, his complaint, which tells me that they're just not going to, and essentially that we have, we have beaten that back here at this point uh, because ballots are now being printed and sent to uh, overseas voters. So I don't think we're going to have that issue here. And actually, that guy was he was he actually tried to file as a Republican presidential candidate here in South Carolina. And he tried to pay his fifty thousand dollar filing fee with a bad personal check. So the check bounced. So, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot of credibility in court. I'm just saying much less as a presidential candidate. He needs to go balance his checkbook. Uh, but, you know, I don't we're not going to have that problem here. And I think the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to step in and settle up for everybody here probably within the next couple of days, to be honest with you. Drew, what will we learn in Iowa? I mean, it's just around the bend. We're less than two weeks away mm-hmm. from the Iowa caucus. I mean, I know what the polls say, but caucuses are funky. Um, strange things happen in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. But but as 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 co-chair of the National Party, what, what are we looking for in the Iowa caucus? Well, you know, uh, like I said, it is different. You know, caucuses are as much organizational meetings as they are, um, you know, straw polls, if you will. So I like our primary. Our presidential primary is essentially a, a, a beauty contest, a straw poll. Uh, and we use that to bind our 50 delegates. South Carolina gets 50 delegates to the national convention. So uh, those delegates are bound by the result of that vote on the first ballot at the convention. The caucuses in Iowa are a little different. Uh, and so what you're seeing in terms of polls in a state that uses caucuses are not always going to be as close to what the final result of a caucus is, I would say, as it usually is to a primary. Uh, now, that said, you know, uh, former President Trump has a huge lead in Iowa, um, you know, but th- those organizational meetings lend themselves more to campaigns who are a little better or have a bit, um, maybe a more organized ground game, as we would call it, uh, because you have to get people not just to go show up and vote and turn around and go home. They have to show up and sit through a meeting that will last several hours, uh, you know, where people who are supporting one candidate or the other We'll go to one corner of the room, and they'll see how the room breaks out, and then they get up, and they start making speeches on behalf of their candidates, and then people who are in one corner may decide to go to the other corner, and it kind of goes and goes until it's over. Um, I'm actually going to go out to Iowa and be a guest there and you know, witness the, the caucus meetings there, be a guest of the state party uh, here in a couple of weeks. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think we're looking for um, – well, to be honest with you, we're looking for whether or not this thing will be settled really quickly or just quickly. Uh, you know, if former President Trump uh, prevails in Iowa, then you've got New Hampshire so a week later. Um, New Hampshire's a primary, but with a little bit of a different electorate 
than South Carolina. We've got a more conservative electorate in our primary here than they do up there. Uh, so you have different candidates, campaigns that are trying to focus on different states based on their perceived strengths or weaknesses or the opposition's perceived strength. Uh, and, you know, we've seen big leads for former President Trump here in South Carolina and out in Nevada, which also uses a caucus, by the way. Uh, I think the thing to remember is 70% of all of the delegates to the Republican National Convention are going to be elected by the end of March. Okay. That means mathematically, there's a really good chance that this whole thing is going to wrap up a whole lot quicker than it did eight years ago. If you remember, in 16, we went all the way until mid-May until we had a presumptive nominee, someone who mathematically had the delegates to win. and You know, things begin to then sort of gel at that point. Uh, other campaigns will suspend their campaigns and go by the wayside. Uh, you know, th there's a good shot that this thing could be over by the time we, uh, we tally the votes here in South Carolina, uh, I would say, but definitely a good shot that uh, it's over by the end of March, just because of the way the math works. Um, you know, if it's going to be different, a lot of campaigns are going to have to start racking up a lot of delegates really, really quick. This thing is not going to go into the summer, in my opinion. What do we learn, Drew? I mean, I look at right track, wrong track, job approval rating, this poll, that poll. One of the things that I've always been curious about, and I don't know exactly how you measure this, but the correlation between enthusiasm and turnout. How enthusiastic are the caucus goers in Iowa? How enthusiastic are Republican right. primary voters in New Hampshire? How do we gauge that? Is it instinctive and kind of your gut says this or that? Or is there yeah. data and analytics to back it up? Well, I mean, you know, the polls do ask that question, you know, uh, who do you plan to vote for? Are you excited to vote for this person? So they do ask those questions, and you can look at it. But, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you might put a little bit of stock in it, but not a whole lot. I mean, conversations that you have with people on the ground, to me, matter more. Uh, just by way of my own personal experience. Uh, I would rather have somebody who's excited to vote for me and to vote for our candidates than someone who just says they'll vote for us if they show up. Because the difference is excited people work. Excited people are likely to bring somebody else with them. Excited people, for instance, are likely to show up to a meeting in Iowa, a caucus meeting that will last several hours, rather than just fill out an absentee ballot and you know for a primary and send it off in the mail or show up an early vote or whatever. Uh, enthusiasm is huge. And, uh, you know, as far as the general election is concerned here going forward, you know, we've got a lot for Republicans to be enthusiastic about, a lot to be excited about, a lot to be um, uh, animated about. And I think might even be a better word uh, because of the things that we've been seeing going on here in the country from the border to overseas to the economy to you name it. Uh, a lot to be animated about. And I think that that is going to encourage Republican work not just turnout, but work uh, here in the fall of uh, this year. Drew, is it fair to say that at times we become obsessed with the presidential election and we fail to understand how important the West Virginia Senate race, the Ohio Senate mm -hmm. race, the Montana Senate race, the Arizona, Nevada Senate races as a co-chair of the national party? How do you allocate time and effort and energy to some of those, you know, states that will decide who's in control of the Senate and House of Representatives? Sure. Well, again, you know, we all live and swim, if you will, in national media all day long, 24-7. And that national media is obsessed with what's going on at the presidential level. Uh, in between elections, it's all obsessed with what's going on in Washington, D.C. I mean, I would say we as conservatives, and I throw myself into having the same problem, know more about what's going on in Washington, D.C. than we do on our own school board or county council. 
you know, and that's to our shame. Uh, because, quite frankly, we can have more influence over what's going on at the local level than we ever could at the national level as individuals. But that aside, as far as directly to your question, yeah, I mean, those races are going to have a huge impact on how successful any Republican president is going to be able to be. Uh, now, West Virginia, Joe Manchin has said he's not running again. That's a state that Donald Trump won by 40 points back in uh, 20. Uh, I think we're pretty we're pretty good in West Virginia. You know, we've got a, a current Republican governor who's going to run there. Uh, I think that's that's all pretty mo- pretty well again. Uh, but then you look at states like Montana, uh, Nevada, Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Uh, there's one or two here that I'm not thinking of at the minute. But uh, you, you basically, Democrats have to run the table on all those races. Republicans only have to win one of them in order to pick up the U.S. Senate. So we've got an excellent chance of winning the U.S. Senate, and the House is going to be close. Uh, and so. When it comes to allocating time, you're right. I mean, I spent a lot of time uh, going from state to state, congressional districts, working with local Republican organizations to try to help them and their candidates when it comes to, you know, fundraising, organization, et cetera. Uh, I'll be in Michigan next week. The 8th congressional district there is going to be key. You know, out of the whole state of Michigan, you've got one seat there, I think, that we could pick up, uh, and we'll be spending time up there. Then I'll be out in Iowa, and I'll be uh, in Montana, and I'll be, be in Alaska in a couple of weeks. We got to race up that way, you know. So uh, you, you got to remember the details because it's one thing to win the White House, but if you don't have the Congress, then you've got a problem. Paul, let me ask you this, and then I'll let you get out of here. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, is with us. When I decided to run for county council in '04 as a Republican in a district that had never elected a Republican, the the local party courted me a bit. I've read stories about. This candidate or potential candidate in Montana said no, but this candidate in Ohio said yes. What What do you guys do? Put ads in the paper saying, "Hey, you interested in running for Senate? Call one eight hundred. You know, we, we we got your back." I mean, seriously. I mean, some of these real good candidates choose to not accept an offer. Some do choose to to accept an offer. How involved is the national apparatus in candidate recruitment and trying to convince a guy? This is the right thing to do, or lady for that matter. Uh, well, I mean, so, so they did get involved. And so you've got different entities there. So uh, for Senate races, you've got the National Senatorial Committee, congressional races, the Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, you know, here in South Carolina, the state party, you know, we're looking for people to run in state house districts, state senate districts, local districts. Uh, for my part here at the state level, I tell all our folks at the county level all the time, if you've got someone you think would make a great candidate and you're trying to convince them to run, call me. I'll come. I'll call them. I'll come meet with them, have coffee with them, give them a back rub, whatever I need to do. You know, we need good conservative candidates to run for these races, especially the ones that are winnable. Every race is not winnable. Uh, and you've got a priority list. And you're looking at the top of that list and then working your way down as far as your time, money, and resources will take you. But the first thing first you have to have a good candidate. You can't beat somebody with nobody. So you have to get involved on trying to convince the good candidates to run uh, and that you're going to be there to help them if they do because look, this is it's not an easy thing to get out there and put your name on a ballot and run for office. You know, you know, and, and nowadays with social media, you don't just run, your whole family runs. And, you know, people say stuff about you on social media they wouldn't say about you in church. You know, so it's, it's a commitment. And you've got to be willing, number one, to help recruit them and then be there to help them. Very well explained. Drew, thanks for your time, my man. And um, we're looking forward to great things in 2024 uh, because Drew McKissick is at least near the helm, if not if not at the helm. Thank you, my friend. And um, and we're fortunate to have you come every week or every week you can, and we certainly appreciate Happy it. Happy to. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, sir. Do the same. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman. 
co-chair of the National Party. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. And I asked the last question for a reason. I'm trying to figure out, for your sake, not mine, I'm trying to figure out, public servant, um, who the best candidates in Ohio and Montana and Nevada are. And, and so far, we're about 50-50. I mean, some of the best candidates in some states have said, thank you, but no thank you. Some of the best candidates in other states have said, I'm in. I'm in. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I'm redundant in saying this because it's true. Health care is complicated. It's expensive. You're not in complete control. You're at the mercy of a system that was designed by somebody that you probably, if you're listening to the show, philosophically disagree with. Um, there are alternatives. There are other ways to go about affordable health care. One of the guys that we've communicated with and become a partner with is Christian Levis at Real Choice Healthcare. Um, if you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, you owe it to yourself, your family, your bank account to call 839 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970. Or if you're tech-savvy like yours truly, <laughs> just go to realchoicehealthcare.com. Realchoicehealthcare.com. Is somebody on the phone? Yes. Let's go there. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning, Daphne. Good morning. I guess Drew Kissinger confirmed the research that I gave you the other day concerning John Anthony Castro, uh, the one person that has not heard this case in South Carolina is the U.S. District Judge Mary Grieger Lewis, who is a Barack Obama appointee, and she will not hear it. Uh, also, the, the Republicans make me so angry when things are so simple to answer. When the Republicans went down to the border, their comment should have been, Joe Biden has broken the law because we have immigration laws on the books, and his duty as the president of the United States is to enforce the laws that Congress pass. Now, you've got McConnell and Schumer and some of those rhinos in Senate that are talking comprehensive immigration reform. Always remember, when they say comprehensive, that means give amnesty to millions, the 8 million that are here that have come in since Biden took office will be given amnesty if those 19 rhinos in the Senate have anything to say about it. Also, the thing that they are asking for is more money, supposedly, to enforce security. The Republicans should up and say, oh no, the only money that's been allocated has been used to stamp every person that appears at the border stamp their approval on them and let them enter the country with a ticket to wherever they want to go and a smartphone and every freebie you can think of. They should say, 
this is not Greg Abbott's fault because every time he tries to stop the influx, uh, the Biden administration sues him and says, well, it's federal law. Well, if it's federal law and you are human trafficking by the federal government, shouldn't they be arrested? You are. Thank you, Daphne. You appreciate that. We lost her or did that she finish? Like- <laughs> um, but, and I want to go back to, to me, and this is where I lose faith in the process. I mean, I understand Congress is a deliberative body. Uh, Dave Baker, as a member of Congress, doesn't need to get, I mean, he doesn't get to call those shots. I don't. Nobody does. One party doesn't. The other party doesn't. I mean, the majority rules and we have votes. But, but where, where I fail to have any faith or trust in the system when it comes to immigration in particular, is comprehensive immigration reform leads me to believe that there are a lot of things that need to be looked at equally. It's almost like, hey, the painter's got to paint the wall. The roofer has to roof the home. Somebody's got to hang the doors. The plumber has to hook all the kitchen appliances up, and they're doing it simultaneously. That's comprehensively constructing a home. But you got to build a foundation. And to me... You can't talk comprehensive immigration reform unless you've made a genuine effort to secure the border. That's building the foundation. That's the backhoe, digging the foundation. That's pouring the concrete with the rebar. I mean, that's what the home sits on, solid ground. And to me, comprehensive immigration reform can't include securing the border because securing the border becomes equal to, ah, you know, Um, work visas, securing the border has to be outside of comprehensive immigration reform because it's the only starting point. There is no other beginning. There is no other genesis. Let's secure the border and then discuss immigration uh, in comprehensive nature. And and I I just, I've never understood that. And the majority of um, careerists in Washington, when you talk immigration reform, they'll say comprehensive. And their comprehensive means that securing the border is a part of this. Securing the border has to be separate of that. It is the foundation. It has to come before you put two by six floor joists and ceilings and trusses and sheetrock and paint and appliances and all. You've got to get that first. And, 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 And the one thing that I think, I mean, we had a kind of a spirited debate yesterday with Jeff about immigration. And, and, and I think Jeff, maybe I'm wrong, I think Jeff equated what's happening on the southern border now to Ellis Island. I mean, that's absurd. I mean, that, look at the visual of people just invading our nation on our southern border. That is uniquely different than the history of immigration this country has when you lawfully and orderly go through Ellis Island. That, that's, that's the way immigration was designed to work. And I think it insults immigration if you argue that what's happening on the southern border today is a celebration of our long-standing history of welcoming people who don't look sound or act like us i mean it's an insult to average americans it's an insult to ellis island what's happening on our southern border is an absolute insult on the lawful orderly productive people came into our country and assimilated and became proud americans but that that is the greatness of the country. The Statue of Liberty represents and embodies that. Ellis Island represents and embodies that. What's happening on our southern border is criminal. It's crime. It's rampant crime. Take a break. Back in a few.
843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning. Hey, Ken, you say you ain't never seen nobody left off the ballot because of the 14-minute amendment in the third paragraph. Well, Trump lead it. I had um insurrection, leader insurrection on July the 6th with the Proud Boys and those people. One more thing. I want to know why Dylan Roof is still alive. Can you find out about that for me? Can you call somebody and find out? And I'll call you back tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. You and I probably agree there. Mm-hmm. I think Dylan Roof being alive is a is an embarrassment to the legal system. I mean, it really and truly is. The guy has shown no remorse, admitted to killing innocent human beings. He should no longer be alive. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with Williams on that. Um, I don't know that I agree with Williams on Trump inciting an insurrection. My point has always been, if you believe the guy incited an insurrection, create some clarity. And Jack Smith could. I mean, Jack Smith could create a lot of clarity on whether or not we're properly interpreting the 14th Amendment, um, Section 3, by inciting an insurrection, rebelling against the nation. I don't have the, the language in front of me, but I'm pretty comfortable. It's pretty, I mean, it, it's very similar to what I just what I just quoted. Jack Smith could say, you know, instead of obstructing the, um, the, the proceedings of an election, he incited an insurrection. He's not charging Trump with inciting an insurrection. Why? I mean, do you believe that Jack Smith, I mean, if, if, if he had any legal standing, I mean, imagine this. I mean, you're asking us to believe that Jack Smith is not going to charge Donald Trump with inciting an insurrection because he doesn't want to meddle in an election of the 14th Amendment and his interpretation would be scrutinized by the courts. No, Jack Smith investigated thoroughly and concluded that Trump may have obstructed the proceedings of an election, but he didn't incite an insurrection. And obstructing the proceedings of an election is not covered in the 14th Amendment, um, Section 3. So Jack Smith, I mean, you're asking me to believe that Jack Smith has some sympathy to America first and some remorse about strategically and aggressively going after Donald Trump. Jack Smith could clear the air by simply saying, I'm bringing charges against Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection. And the courts will decide, and a jury, I guess, at some point in time, or a judge will decide whether he properly interpreted, you know, the events of January 6th. But because Jack Smith chose to not charge Trump with inciting an insurrection, we have this ambiguity. We have this uncertainty. I mean, I'm pretty certain <laughs> that, that, um, that the Supreme Court, in the name of due process and equal protection under the law, I feel the court will unanimously, I mean, maybe Jackson votes against it, but I believe the court, at least 8-1, maybe 9-0, says we're just not going to be a part of convicting a guy of something that excludes him from participating in an election when the prosecution chose to take a pass on not just conviction, but charging. I mean, he's not been charged, certainly not convicted of inciting an insurrection. And I just think the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, will, will defer to due process and equal protection under um, the law. I understand the textualist, originalist 
living, breathing constitutionalist. I understand that intellectual and legal debate. I mean, that'd be a, a more constitutional scholar debate. But, but Smith could clear the air. And then you have, a, you have a judge or a jury decide whether or not Donald, I mean, you bring, uh, you know, exculpatory evidence. You bring all the other evidence. You say, hey, here's what we've got. Judge, jury, you decide whether Donald Trump incited an insurrection. He didn't because he doesn't believe he has the goods to convince fair-minded people that Donald Trump incited an insurrection. I'm going to predict that some of the obstruction election may not stand. I mean, there's a Fisher case that is going to be heard by the Supreme Court maybe next week that I think will, uh, let, let's hold on to that. I, I, don't want to, I don't want to jump the gun here. I'm going to come back and discuss that. I mean, I've read a lot about it. it it's very off the beaten path, but there's a January 6th defendant that apparently had enough money to hire some really good lawyers and, and make a case against the charges of obstructing and some statutes. Uh, I've, got some, I've got some articles here we, we may read here in just a bit and kind of um, incorporate that into the debate. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. I, I just can't believe no one's reading the 14th Amendment. At the end of it, it says that only both houses of Congress, three-fifths vote, can remove someone from the ballot. So does everybody believe that right after the Civil War, they passed the amendment that says all blue states could remove the Republican nominee for president and all the red states could remove the Democratic nominee for president? I mean, seriously, this makes no sense, insurrection or not. How do you insurrect against yourself? I, I believe Trump was still president, and he offered the National Guard because he had heard the, you know, all the machinations about people going to go cause trouble. So he wanted to, to help them. But we don't know what the Democrat Party stands for anymore. They used to be for strong border. They used to be for laws against drugs, three strikes and you're out. Every, you know, the wind changes. They, they change so you don't know. Plagiarism used to be bad, but now because of DEI, this woman that was selected only because she's black and gay as the president of Harvard, plagiarism doesn't matter because that doesn't fit the box. And, and talking, <laughs> uh, I just... I listen to some of these people talking. I, I get amazed that we're, we're losing our country, and and we we got nobody smart enough to pull us out of it. That's why I stay on my knees, and uh, I don't think I can add anything more to this program. So, y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Well, I mean that that's why Smith's not doing it. I mean, if Smith charges Trump with inciting an insurrection, you bring all the evidence to the table. And Pelosi's got to defend some of her decisions, the Capitol City Police, the FBI. I mean, you begin asking serious questions to very serious people. What, what were you doing? What role did you play? How many informants did the FBI have infiltrating some of these operatives? That's why the, the case didn't break. Smith would love to charge Trump with inciting an insurrection. But once you make that charge, 
you begin having discovery. And if he's acquitted, then it settles the issue and it's no longer an issue. But I think, the, big, I think the bigger issue is discovery. I mean, that, that's the bigger issue. I mean, if you start making that charge, the Trump defense team is going to have a discovery process. They're going to ask for all this information. You're going to have people on the record under oath, fear perjury. I mean, it, it becomes a very serious business then. Smith would love to charge Trump with inciting an insurrection. But he's afraid of what we might find out during the due process. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I regretfully told Josh this morning, not regretfully. I mean, I have regrets about this reality of the baby boomers. I told Josh, we're talking about Vivek Ramaswamy potentially being a VP candidate. And I told Rev, I said, Rev, you and I need to take a pass on picking Trump's VP. Josh's generation, the following, uh, I'm talking about from 40 to 20. I mean, those are the people that need to help us choose who they trust to carry the, the, you know, the torch of America first to the next generation. Is it a sustainable political movement? And I told Josh, I said, we gave, I mean, the, the, the boomers gave the world the Eagles and $30 trillion in debt. I mean, that's kind of what we've done. Um, pat on the back for us good boomers for doing, um, I mean, Rev was talking about the music. I said, well, we did give the Eagles. Yeah. You know, we, we gave the world the Eagles and $33 trillion in debt. And we did manage to tell people where to stand and what to do for the best part of my life. I mean, I was born at the end of the Second World War. was like 45-ish, somewhere thereabout. Uh, out of that came these transnational organizations and monetary funds. Well, not monetary funds, whatever. Uh, the central banks. I mean, the central banks, uh, some of the international monetary, the United Nations is in New York as a result of the American empire. Um, so, so yeah, Josh, your generation. Gave us a couple of wars. Too. Well, I mean, well, here's what you guys, I mean, you want marching orders, Josh? I mean, you want to give you your generation what we need you to do? Sure. Clean up the mess we made, man. <laughs> Working on it. Uh, just clean up the mess we made. I mean, uh, good luck finding a band as good as the Eagles, but certainly you guys can figure out a way to pay off $33 trillion in federal debt, <laughs> right? I uh, will figure it okay. out. Okay. Okay. Who do you like? in this America first movement. I mean, obviously you're a fan of Trump. Mm -hmm. You believe in the wrecking ball kind of thing. You believe in the political disruptor, the blunt instrument, but, but aside of that, Josh, um, I mean, if I picked that person for you, which is unfair, it would be JD Vance. I mean, I think JD Vance as the intellectual underpinning and the, you know, I mean, I, I think he's a, I think Ramaswamy's every bit as smart as Vance. He's more outspoken. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, he wants to win you with a whip. I think J.D. Vance tries some of that, but but also a little bit of the carrot. You know, let, let's lure people into believing that we're the force that probably needs to dominate American politics. What sort of person do you believe your generation are looking for? That's a that's a good question. And, uh, you know, obviously the entire— Did you entire... expect me to ask a bad question, Josh? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I I do think uh, it's tough, you know, because obviously the whole generation is not on the same page. Some people are going to want blue-haired weirdos, you know, running for president. Um, I do think – I don't know enough about J.D. Vance to, to pick between him or Ramaswamy, but I do think from what I have seen, Ramaswamy – is probably the best option to carry the torch after Donald Trump. But he's been on the national stage. Right. Ramaswamy has had a chance to demonstrate his skills 
at the national level. Mm-hmm. Vance has been a senator from Ohio. I mean, I think you would be very impressed with J.D. Vance if you got to know some of his policy stances. Now, once again, he gets accused of being a hypocrite. I'm going to imagine that. Here's what I'm saying. You ready? I want, I want to address the hypocrisy. I sent Rev an article last night. Joe from Florence called in. He's a big Springsteen guy. I'm a big Springsteen guy. He said there's an article out there from the good old, I think it might have been at 18 or 19, that basically proclaimed Springsteen as a phony. He's a fraud. Um, the article says, yeah, he is. I mean, he's a hypocrite. But we all are. I mean, we all are. The problem with Springsteen and some of these other hypocrites in the public square, they've gained tremendous amounts of wealth by convincing you there's something they really aren't. Um, if I'm a hypocrite and I kind of, you know, born at home plate, end up on first or second base, that's the normal routine. I mean, that, you know, so what? Ken's a hypocrite, join the club. But but if you if you in a hypocritical way, amass enormous fame and fortune, you don't get the pass. You just don't. Well, I think is you it can. fair or unfair? I think he got the pass for the most part. And if he had just played music and went on about his business and then retired whenever he retires, I don't think he's even in that conversation of being asked, are you a hypocrite or not? But the Jeep ad at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago and the outspokenness, the I'm leaving the country if Trump's elected and reelected or whatever – then that's made him a target and and made you know, made us some of us question and ask those type of questions. So do you buy into this? Josh, do you buy into this? The both the, the two of you. I believe that hypocrisy is accepted as a an essential ingredient in all of us. I mean, I, I'm a hypocrite. I mean, I you know, I'll I'll readily admit that I have enormous fallacies and flaws. I mean, I try to be guarded about them. I try to be aware. The one of the beauties I think of getting a little older is your man enough to look in the mirror and be candid? I mean, I, you know, you're getting a little older. Josh isn't. I mean, I, we're, we're a bit idealistic when we're younger, and we don't want to accept the world as it is, and we don't want to accept who we are. We want to improve and be better and and contribute more and, you know, and mankind to do the same. And and, and we kind of get, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a romance we have with the, the, this idealism that we ascribe to, that we believe in, liberal, conservative, uh, pragmatic, whatever. Whatever your notions are, um, and then at some point in time in our existence, we kind of look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm who I am and the world's who it is. I mean, I'm, also, I'm not going to stop trying to make it better and make my, myself better, but there's an acceptance that, that there's a, there's, there's not the sense of urgency any longer. I mean, I, you know, I'm 60, man. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, my dash is cluttered on my truck. My dash has been cluttered on my truck for 30 years. It's probably going to be cluttered for another 20 years if I live that long. This is who I am. And there's an acceptance we have of that. The one thing that I told Rev earlier about hypocrisy, and, and I want to get your take on this, I believe that it's human nature to appear to be a bigger deal than any of us really are. I mean, we want, you can, you can say you don't want the bright lights, you can say you don't want the attention, you don't want the notoriety, you want to fly under the radar. If you're trying to make a mark in the world, all of us to some degree are hypocritical about, I don't want the attention, I don't want the notoriety, I don't want the wealth, I don't want the headache, I don't want all that stuff that comes along with it. I think that's accepted. I think human beings understand that about other human beings. You know, Rev makes X number of dollars. If Rev's had a beer or two and I say, hey, well, Rev, what do you make? I make this. 
and he embellished it by 30,000 or whatever. You know, hey, Rail, what's the fastest you've ever been in a car? And, and he and increases the speed by 20 miles an hour or whatever, you know. I mean, that, that's, that's human nature. It is it? human nature, very much so. I think the unforgivable hypocrisy is the guy that has a half billion bucks, but he wears Levi's and a baseball cap and tries to convince you he's just like you are. I think we people have a problem with that. It's almost, I'll give an example. In politics, I have always found that the, the voting constituency are willing to forgive an elected official for about anything except utilizing that position to gain favor or, or some family member gaining favor. Biden's done if he can be convicted or Americans can be convinced that he skimmed and his family skimmed off peddling influence. He's done. I mean, that's an un, because the American people say, well, I can't do that. I mean, you know, I would never do. I, I've always said politicians are just like us, just a little more so. We're all egotistical to some degree. We're all um, hypocritical to some degree. We're all racist to some degree. We're all bigoted to some degree. We're all chauvinist to some degree. We're all unfair to our fellow man um, to some degree. But I think, I think in Springsteen's case, and I told Rev this, I think in Springsteen's case, a lot of the hypocrisy that is unacceptable is the guy's got an American Express black card, but he's wearing a pair of Levi's and boots he got from a secondhand store. Come on now. Come on. I'm, am I on to something there, Josh? I mean, that sort of hypocrisy is different than the usual garden variety hypocrisy. I think it might be. I think that <clears throat> I think everyone in this country is at a point basically where the the ends justify the means. So if if you're one Explain of these, explain that. Yeah. So I think someone who has Trump derangement syndrome. I don't think that this story with Biden, if he gets, if he is proven beyond the shadow of a doubt to be peddling influence, I don't think they're going to care. I think that to them, because he's not Trump, exactly. And I think that everyone pins this on. Everyone does this, and everyone accuses the other side of doing this, where. They have an opportunity to get ahead. Okay, so Trump, we can we can take him off the ballot on this wishy-washy, did he do an insurrection thing? Let's do it. The people that don't like Trump are completely okay with that, and they don't care about the judicial system. And I think vice versa, some of that is going on on our side, where I, I honestly, I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but it's like if Joe Biden is— because. Uh, I'll, I'll give. I'll use myself as an example. I actually don't care that much that Joe Biden is peddling influence because I think absolutely everyone in Washington is doing that. But I do think that this might be a good opportunity. You know, hone in on him so that we can do something to get him not elected. It's kind of like I believe that Barack Obama was probably not born in the United States, but at this point in time in 2024. Does us proving that mean anything politically? No. Then I I, I kind of just don't care. Okay, this feeds into my, you ready for the conspiracy theory of the yes. day? Because I've got one, and I know you love these things as well. I've got a belief, and, and who am I to diagnose a nation? I don't believe America is mentally ill, and I'm talking about in the collective, Josh, but I do believe that Americans are mentally unstable right now when it comes to politics and you know, your opinion juxtaposed to mine or mine thinking about yours and, you know, are we, can we find some common ground and can we diplomatically move a nation 
to a better place. I don't think Americans, I mean, I don't know how you test for mental instability. I mean, we talk about mental illness a lot. We turned our back on the mentally ill. We, we, we threw the mentally ill out of hospitals and care centers and said, hey, make a way. Do the best you can. Next thing you know, there's a tent city in the woods, you know, behind a Lowe's or a Home Depot somewhere. And Ref's scared for his wife, or I'm scared for my wife to go to Lowe's or Home Depot after dark for fear of encountering some mentally ill homeless person. That's mental illness personified. We understand the mental illness like that. But, but are we as a nation, and I'm asking this question, are we as 330 million Americans mentally unstable to the point of not being able to govern and advance a representative republic? I do think so. So you agree with my diagnosis? Yeah. I mean, I think of this a lot. I mean, I know it's a conspiracy theory, and how we got there, don't have any idea. I mean, the, the diagnosis of being mentally ill is a medical diagnosis. I mean, how do you take, hey, uh, what big a sample size is it that we can properly say whether the country is mentally unstable or not? I mean, you look at, I think Josh illustrated, um, it doesn't matter what Biden did. I mean, I'm not saying what he did or didn't do. We're going to have an investigation. We'll eventually have, I mean, I think there's a lot of, of they are there. I mean, there, there are checks and LLCs and shell companies and disbursements and transfers and loans that were never, or loan repayments. There are no loans, a lot of loan repayments. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a moron, but I'm, I'm not a guy out to get anybody. I mean, I, I just think there's a lot of they are there, and it doesn't surprise anybody. And I'm a little bit like Josh. Biden did it, but the majority of those folks up there do it as well. Um, but, but I do believe, and, and here's the question I'll ask. So if you believe that Biden did that, and you'll still vote for Biden because he's not Trump, is that mental unstable? I mean, is that mentally impaired for a brief second or two or three? It's a little bit like um, premeditated murder or a man comes home and finds his wife in bed with a, he would never kill anybody until he found his wife in bed with another man. And then that fit of rage. I mean, for a second, what? He was mentally unstable, right, Rev? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, th- there are a lot of charges, you know, that say, hey, my, my, my guy, my, my client, I'm a lawyer, my client would have never killed anybody under any circumstance. He's done everything the right way all of his life. But when he came home in a fit of rage, I mean, he was not himself. See, I believe we're there. I think Trump has introduced us to that mental condition that is so irrational and impractical to, to Josh's point, you don't give a damn what Joe Biden did. If he can win Pennsylvania, he can he can peddle all the influence, he can embezzle all the money, he can enrich all the family members he chooses to. And to me, that's a form, I mean, that borders on some weird mental instability. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD, good morning. Good morning, Skyline, Chili Baker, and Charlie Hustle Kid. Good memories, man, uh, AM radio, back there in Cincinnati. Back in the day, Ken, I guess you were on the top or the bottom of the bunk bed. We swapped. My brother had the top for a while, and then we swapped, and uh, whatever Mom said. Well, it depended on if you wanted to be Ricky Steamboat that day. You'd jump off the top bunk. Uh, I tell you, man, when I uh, think about Jeff, I'm going to give him credit. Jeff's got a common denominator with us. I think he was promoting Reagan yesterday. When I think about the border, I, my question is more of why versus who. In other words, why are you wanting to cross the border? I actually like uh, the Hispanic culture, especially Latinas, 
because people have a work ethic. They're spiritual people. Um, they respect gender, even within their language. Uh, if I say gato, that's a male cat. Gata is a female cat. Uh, but, Ken, it all boils down to, and I think we uh, got this thing straight one day, the 235-plus math. Now, is is Joe Biden really going to go to Valley Forge and talk about January 6th? You heard this story? Yes. Yes, that is crazy. Now, what would George Washington think about Joe Biden? Oh, there's a guy. He's been in government for 52 years. Okay, well. I don't know how long was King George in charge of England back in the day. But if you break it down, and I was thinking about Valley Forge, it's in Chester and Montgomery County. And that though, that was the difference in the last election. We can talk about Philadelphia. Actually, Joe Biden underperformed in Philadelphia. Uh, I think he got 471 votes more uh, than Trump, and then Hillary got 475. But these color counties of of Philadelphia, they're going to swing that state. And trust me, if me and Ken Arn and Dave Baker know that Pennsylvania's got 19 electoral votes, well, they're going to, they're going to just go fool there as far as trying to protect that. And then you've got Michigan's got 15 electoral votes. Wisconsin's got 10. Uh, Georgia, 16. Arizona, 11. I think in the back of the Democrats' mind, eh, Georgia and Arizona are traditional Republican states. But they're going to protect that, and they'll, they'll, they'll make it into Valley Forge. They'll sit there, and they will protect Pennsylvania, letting you know that. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. To me, the number that matters, I know we're behind a bit, Josh. Stick with me. The number that matters is 19. I mean, I'm convinced of this, and I'm not some statistic guru. You know that. I mean, I'm more instinct in gut than I am analytics and data, but the number is 19. I mean, never in, well, once again, in my lifetime, I don't ever remember a Republican having 251 in his pocket. And I'm not saying take things for granted. I'm not saying take North Carolina for granted. I'm not saying take Georgia, put Georgia back in the, in the R column. When the, when the disapproval numbers are as they are and the right track, wrong track number is as it is, I don't care who is running for office. I mean, that number matters. 232 becomes 235 if Trump holds serve. Put Georgia in the column as 251, and Georgia is going to vote for a Republican. They're not going to have the Gwinnett Fulton County shenanigans that they had in 2020. I'm convinced of that. The General Assembly in the state of Georgia has done a pretty good job of cleaning up some of that. Not all of it, but a lot of it. That gets Trump to 251. 19. I mean, you got to go somewhere and find 19 electoral college votes. It'll be less than that in 2030. I'll make a prediction. Don't 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 say this, Rev. I think two thirty five turns into two forty one in the in the next census. I think I think two thirty two in twenty two thirty. Uh, excuse me, two thirty two in uh, twenty ten the census, and then you do two twenty, you get to two thirty five. I think the new number will be two forty one ish, maybe two forty two. Um, California lost more residents in twenty twenty three than it has in its history. In its history, they may lose two electoral votes. Texas will pick up two. Florida may pick up three. South Carolina could pick up one. Georgia could pick up one. Um, And if the red states get redder, the number increases exponentially. Take a break. Back in a few. 
843-661-0937. Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. David in Bennettsville. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Uh, Trump is the uh, definition of mental instability. I mean, think about it. He, oh, this person's the best. He's the greatest. Oh, no, he's terrible. He sucks. He can't do the job. And calling for election fraud when, oh, yeah, we have fake electors being flown in to Washington. And, uh, yeah, we're going to call some state officials and see if they can find us some votes. His standards are so sucky. I don't know how anybody with any intelligence can vote for him. He is sleaze to sleaze. To, he makes Clinton look like a, an angel. So it's not good enough to insult Trump. You're insulting the Trump voter now. Sure. Yeah. How can anybody with any functioning brain cells vote? Well, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. I have functioning brain cells, and I'm very supportive of Donald Trump. Me too. And, well, you, you're low-hanging fruit, I guess. Explain that, low-hanging fruit. I'd be very interested. I've always wanted to know the mind of somebody with Trump derangement syndrome, and I think you're going to give us an opportunity if I allow you to keep talking. So please, I'm going to explain low-hanging fruit. Oh, I don't have Trump derangement. I sure you do. You absolutely do. I've diagnosed you from no, afar. You diagnosed the Trump voters. Why can't I diagnose? <laughs> because I did not vote for either one because I saw the, the right on the wall. But, but you, you, said the Trump, you, you said the Trump voter cannot be an intelligent being or creature. I, I'm saying that that is the comment of someone who was afflicted with Trump derangement syndrome, and I've often wanted to know what it sounds like when somebody is afflicted with Trump derangement syndrome. What 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 sort of mentality does that include? The mentality of the, you cannot read and figure out that this guy is slime ball to the utmost, and you want that for a president. That makes me an anti-intelligent. I mean, that that, that makes me dumb. Yeah. Okay. It's e- how can it be anything else? So, so your answer I mean, is to value? not vote for anybody. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Appreciate the call. I mean, once again, I, I did. I, I'd love to try and get into the mind of somebody with Trump derangement syndrome. And um, I mean, I'm cool with saying Trump's unstable and he's unpredictable and he's he talks out both sides of his mouth. I mean, fair enough. I mean, I think some of that's accurate. Maybe no, so. no question also about it. Pretty darn good president, but, but in my I opinion. think when you go down the road of saying that Trump voters are not intelligent, I mean, that that's the classic case study to me of someone with Trump derangement syndrome. It's not good enough to say this guy's unstable. He's He's not the kind of guy you need in the wild. I mean, that, that, those are legitimate arguments. Well, and I'd prefer to have the conversation where he expanded on why he thinks, you know, he, he's come to these conclusions and he doesn't like Trump, and that's fine, and he's welcome to that opinion. He's welcome to call this show and express that opinion. But, you know, let's go a little deeper and say, okay, here's what you don't like, and what would you like to see? And instead of going down the road of, you know, anybody who votes for him doesn't have a brain cell in but, their but head. That, but once again, Rev, I think the person that does not suffer from Trump derangement syndrome, you have that conversation. To me, and we're talking about mental illness again, <laughs> to our syndrome, to me, the person that could properly be diagnosed with Trump derangement syndrome automatically insults those who allow Trump to be politically relevant. I mean, I, I think the Trump, but if you, if you poll Trump voters and you ask Trump voters, hey, do you think the guy you're voting for is unpredictable? Yeah. Do you think he can be a bit unstable? Yeah. Do you think he can be incredibly narcissistic? Yeah. 
Do you think he could talk out both sides of his mouth? Yeah. I mean, th- those are fairly intelligent responses. I think the great disconnect in American politics today is the belief that Trump voters are, are cultish or cult-like. I mean, I, I just don't buy that. I mean, it's just it's bizarre to me um, how someone like that, and I, and I, once again, I'm like you. I respect everybody's opinion. I mean, I disagree with a lot of people's opinion, but I try to not interrupt and I try to allow people to say what they believe. I mean, yeah, at times I'm sitting there scratching my head going like, wow, this is pretty crazy. But I would imagine at times you scratch your head. Well, I'm talking to say, wow, this guy's pretty crazy in what he's saying now. I mean, hey, welcome to the crazy world of, of politics. And and there is some provocateur included in this. There is some, uh, you know, I've never, ever said that I thought Trump did everything reasonably and rationally. I think at times he is very irrational and unreasonable. Um, welcome to the real world. But but to suggest that people who vote for him can't be very smart I think is a is one of the best examples of someone who has Trump derangement syndrome. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington, good morning. Hey, I, I can't believe uh, he just called. He, he just skipped from any kind of argument or conversation to calling you names, which you may or may not deserve. I would say you probably don't deserve those. Well, some I do, some I don't. <laughs> some I absolutely do, and some I don't think I do. But uh, I don't. I don't know. I thought you were on a different track this morning when I heard you uh, talking about how you enjoyed uh, the Beavis and Butthead uh, of Mika and Joe. I, I don't know. There, I can't decide which of them was uh, the model for Beavis and which one was the model for Butthead. But they, they that that just kind of amazed me. But the, this whole idea. What I would really like to know is what are those 25 or 35 percent that think we're on the right track when if we continue with the borders open like this, this country is going to collapse because uh, we're talking at a recurring expense of close to a trillion dollars a year to maintain track and uh, take care of all of these people that are just coming into the uh, jumping on the on the wagon here, and they're getting all this uh, free stuff. I mean, you can't hardly blame those people for coming because they put out the ad. Hey, you got all kinds of free stuff, including a five star hotel in New York, if you can get there and figure out how to get on a train to get into the city. But uh, that's uh, th- this is just. Uh, insanity on a whole nother level but i i do think daphne was right earlier uh absolutely right that uh every, every time they say that we we want a, a total uh a remake of our, our immigration laws and everything they really mean amnesty they when they say that there it's just a bad a bad thing and I I get really sick of these people when you talk about immigration. The first thing they say and the last thing they say is we're a nation of immigrants. Well, we're a nation that accepts immigrants. We're not a nation of immigrants. Uh, so far in the past, we've kind of assimilated people over over the years. But uh, this uh, thing is like drinking from a fire hose. What's happening down there at the border? And I don't know how the people of Texas are um, 
weathering this. I know that people in Texas are tougher than uh, the average person, I would have to say, having lived out there for a while. <laughs> Some Texans are pretty tough. But uh, they, they've been drinking from a fire hose for a long time, and it's, uh, it's beginning to wear them out. Well said. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. I'll say this. I think the most intelligent vote cast in the 16, 20, and 24 election is somebody who struggled in voting for Trump. Somebody who really considered whether or not this was the right thing to do, but because of their distrust in the status quo, we've coined the phrase the cathedral. Curtis Jarvin actually coined the phrase. We've um, kind of taken it as our own. They they intellectually, they understood the the dilemma, the dynamic, where, where the nation is, who has been in charge, and how miserably they failed to effectively govern the nation's affairs. They don't particularly believe Trump's the answer. But in their mind, in, in their intellectual reasoning and rationale, they've concluded, I'll roll the dice with this guy instead of continuing with all the others. I think that is a very intelligent vote, vote that considers, and it's not driven by emotion. I mean, in fact, you're trying to talk yourself out of voting for Donald Trump because you do believe he's too bombastic and narcissistic and irrational and impractical. But, but because of your belief that the system needs disruption, that the status quo needs to be overthrown, that you can't trust the people who have self-enriched themselves at the trough of government, you vote for Trump anyway. That's the smartest voter in the room, in my opinion. Take a break. Back in a few. Seems to me at about nine, the show kind of just—I mean, it—it it, th- there's a structure, Josh, to what do we do. I mean, th- there's a—I mean, we got guests and we got even though it doesn't and, sound like it. But I mean, it, I know it doesn't sound <laughs> like it, and I mean, it, and it's not—I mean, the confines of what we do here are not very small. I mean, we take a lot of liberties and discretions, and you know, we kind of bob and weave, and we turn sometimes on the 180 and go another way. The nine o'clock hour seems to be liberation hour. Uh, we just kind of go and go and go and start talking about some of the craziness of conspiracy theories or the craziness of the non-conspiracy theorist. Um, seems to me more conspiracy theories come true than, than not in recent time. Um, I was thinking about Rev and I were talking during the break, a couple of breaks back, and um, it's kind of an interesting question to ask. We talked about the mentally ill being released from these care centers, and it goes back to Reagan in California. And, um, you know, and, and basically we closed a lot of mental institutions that care for the mentally ill. And we, I mean, for, for lack of a better word, we said, good luck, you know, um, just try to do the best you can. And it was unfair to some, and, you know, we, we've got these tent cities, we've got some of these homeless encampments. And I would argue that a overwhelming share, I don't know about a majority, but many, many, many of these people are mentally ill. I mean, diagnosed. I mean, if you carried them to a mental facility, they would be clearly diagnosed as clinically mentally ill. I mean, they need medicine. They need treatment. I mean, it's just like having cancer or diabetes or something else. I mean, they are, they are sick and they need help. Rev raised an interesting point. So if we believe that that's clearly defined as mentally ill, and I think we can all, what, what, what degree, what variation, I don't know. I don't have any idea. Um, but it concerns me, I mean, it genuinely concerns me um, to go to a store late at night and you've heard there's a kind of a, um, a homeless encampment somewhere back there 
and one of the mentally ill kind of, you know, walking around the parking lot. I mean, you and I've talked a little bit about it. It makes you nervous. Mm -hmm. I mean, it does. Um, I don't think it's their fault. I mean, I don't. I think society has an obligation to care for the mentally ill. I I do. I mean, you know. We need to do better. we, We need to do a better job. I mean, you'll never clearly or completely take care of the problem. But here's the question that, Rev didn't ask a question, but here's kind of an interesting byproduct of that. So at some point in time, the, the, the 18 year, ah, the 15 year old that was very different, extremely different and wanted to have some sort of sex change operation. I mean, they were not accepted in the mainstream. I mean, it was abnormal. It was, it was odd. It was, um, I mean, I'll use gender dysphoria. I mean, I, I, you know, I've read enough. I'm not clinically trained. I'm not medically educated. But I've read enough and tried to understand enough in a in a sympathetic kind of way, Josh. Gender dysphoria is a mental illness. I mean, I'm convinced of that. Gender dysphoria is a mental illness. I mean, there are ways to counsel young people about the, the gender fluidity or the uncertainty or the sex change operation they're about to have as a um, as a minor child. But but Rev made a point. We never tried to make normal the mentally ill. I mean, we've accepted that we've probably done a lousy job since Reagan, you know, did what he did in California of dumping these mentally ill people on the street. I mean, there's a way, I mean, you can tell that person has issues. What, what degree of mental ill? I don't know. Don't have any idea. But all of a sudden in the name of DI and transgenderism, we're normalizing mental illness. We're forcing Josh, Rev, Ken, and a lot of our listeners to accept that. And I, I, I What's the difference in the gender dysphoric 16-year-old and the person living in the homeless encampment? We know they're mentally ill, and we have sympathy for that person, and we want them to find a way to get help and and, and maybe take medicine or, or maybe protect them and society from one another. But But all of a sudden, in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the transgender community and gender fluidity and... Uh, you know, we, we basically said they're not mentally ill. I mean, you, you're, you, there's something wrong with you for not embracing their independence, their perspectives, who they think they are, who they identify as. So aren't we in a weird way normalizing mental illness? I mean, if you believe gender dysphoria is a mental illness, I'll use transgenderism as an example. I mean, you're asking me as a 60-year-old conservative white male to accept that there's nothing wrong with the parent of a 12-year-old allowing that kid to have their gender mutilated. I mean, that, that's what the government in Ohio is asking. I mean, the governor of Ohio basically vetoed the legislation that would incriminate, you know, the process of parents and doctors performing sex change operations on minor, on minor children. To me, that's mentally ill. It is bizarre. It's, I mean, it, I think it, it gets to the world of wickedness. And, and, you know, um, the, the work of the devil, I don't want to get super spiritual on you here, but I think that's a reflection of the spiritual battle that God warned us about. I mean, there's going to be good. There's going to be evil. And at times evil will be unbelievable, strategic and, and diabolical and how it enters the mainstream. So all of a sudden young people, and I worry about this with, with my youngest daughter, that she's going to grow up in a world and the world has normalized something that in mine and your generation, Rev, would have been completely and totally abnormal and would have been called as such. I mean, does that concern you? 
Is that am I am I on to something here? I mean, I, I don't know. It's nearly ten o'clock. We can have an elongated conversation about it. But Josh, I mean, you're a younger guy. I mean, I got to believe you're a little more less nostalgic than I am. I mean, I don't know that you're more accepting than I am, but you're obviously less set in your ways than I am. Well, what do you make of that? Those those mutual comparisons. I do think that this is uh, <clears throat> the the mental illness thing is a serious issue. I mean, obviously, I think it is uh, a the part, person part, camping in the woods, right? And part, can and can operate in normal society. It's society's job to provide for these people, but but what does that look like? That is not enabling. So, in what the, do we owe the minor child who wants to have a sex change, and the parent who wants to allow the minor child to have a sex, and a government that says, "Okay, we'll bless it. Here's our stamp of approval." Electroshock therapy, but but I mean, is that is that the the is that the encouraging of the mentally ill? Yeah, I I, I think it is to provide them with what they want. I think that those surgeries shouldn't exist at all. So the government is acting as an enabler. Yes. Okay, an enabler of someone who is probably mentally ill. We'll continue this tomorrow. Enjoy your day.